Good morning. Does anybody know who we're going to talk about today? Not a clue. Jesus, probably, eventually. Kind of hard not to. Excuse me, I might take my jacket off. It's a little warm in here. Hope that doesn't bother anybody. Well, I hope so, too. hope so, too. Anybody know what we're going to speak about today? Eric. He says with a question mark, is it rubable? Is it rubable or is it rubable? I'm not going to make any apologies about how to say these names. It's an ancient text, so, you know, we probably don't even say it today like they said it back then anyway. So, Zerubbabel, that's who we're going to speak about today. Do you know who Zerubbabel is? We got one, raise your hand if you know who Zerubbabel is. We got one, we got about a half a dozen hands. Okay, very good. Well, we're going to have a good time figuring out who Zerubbabel is. Okay, good. Well, I'm going to do a little history review for us, because it's going to take that to talk about who Zerubbabel is, okay? So let's do a little history review. Can you uh, show that up there, Jake? We're going to get a, little, little, a couple slides here on the, from the computer. A little history lesson on where we're at. Um, go to the second slide real quick, Mike. Thanks. So this is the nation of Israel, right? Here's Egypt. This is Turkey. And this would be the, what, the Mediterranean Sea, Red Sea, Persian Gulf. So this is where Israel and Judah, remember that the, under the, right after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two countries. Israel was in the north with ten tribes, and Judah and Benjamin were in the south, which is called Judah. Okay, and the ten tribes are called Israel. So go, up, go up to the next, the previous slide there, Mike. So what happened? Well, these are all in B.C., before Christ, and around the 722 time frame, the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. There's great powers, great world powers going on at that time, and Assyria was one of the largest at that time. That was around 727, and that was the kingdom of Assyria, Shalmaneser, and Sargon, kings together, took the first, took the ten tribes from the north. In the south, you still had the kingdom of Judah. But again, they were in decline as well. Jehoiakim becomes king of Judah in 609, and this is about the same time that the Babylonians took over Assyria. They conquered Assyria around that same time. Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard of him, famous Babylonian king, right? He becomes king of Babylon in 605. The Babylonians invade Judah. Uh, they have a... Um, Jehoiakim becomes king of Judah. He rebels. Uh, excuse me. Zedekiah becomes king of Judah, set up by Nebuchadnezzar. Eventually he rebels, and in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and destroys Jerusalem. All the walls are torn down. The temple is destroyed. And all the major houses, all the houses of all the great people are leveled. Okay? So this is where we're at in history, 586 B.C. Okay, after that, Cyrus becomes king of Persia in 550. Babylon falls to Cyrus. 
in 539, Cyrus sets up someone named Darius the Mede to rule Babylon. And of course, one of the most important ones we want to look at is not where you could see it. So I'll read it to you. Give me a little help there. Thank you, Jake. Good man. Zerubbabel in 538 and Joshua lead a small party back to Palestine. Okay? So that's where we're at in world history. And I got all sorts of bunch of other events are happening along, around the same time. Rome is starting and things are happening in China. This is the history of the, of the area we're talking about. Okay? Let's talk about that. That's where the Jews have been taken captive. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Mike. Again, they're being taken captive. Here's Assyria, where Israel went. This is called the Fertile Crescent, where you follow the beam there. That's because all this was desert. Even though you see a red line there, that's not very accurate. Most likely they went around, because this was all desert. So Israel was taken first, and then years later, Judah was taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Okay, thanks, Mike. Why were they there? Why were Judah and Benjamin, why was the country of Judah taken to Babylon? Let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles. There's another good question. Does anyone know where Second Chronicles is at? And try to get some use out of those pages of your Bible that don't often get used. Second Chronicles chapter 36. We'll read about that King Zedekiah who Nebuchadnezzar had set up in Jerusalem. He reigned 11 years. Second Chronicles 36. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations. That was the nations the Lord had cast out from before them. They were doing the same things. And defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Now, we won't talk about the details of what they did, but the, some, some of the sins were just hideous. Some of the things they did in the temple were just downright gross. Again, defiling the, 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 the house of the Lord. Okay, verse 15. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young, young man or virgin, or the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king, and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of the, of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders. All these he took to Babylon. Excuse me. Then he burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. 
where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Why were they taken captive? Why was the temple allowed to be destroyed? Why would God allow such a thing to happen to his people and to the temple where he said he would put his name? It's because they had abused knowing the Lord. They had not taken knowing the Lord as an important thing. They had taken him for granted. And they set the Lord aside and they worshipped the abominations, the idols, and all the idolatrous practices of the same nations that God cast out from before them. So they didn't care anything about the Lord. They even abused the land. God did a wonderful thing with them. He says, look, I'm going to do a special thing even for your land. If you, if you will just obey me and do what I say, I'm going to do a special thing. Every six years, you're going to get a double crop. So that guess what? In the seventh, you don't even have to plant. Let the, let the fields go. Let them rest. But what happened? They didn't even do that. You know, the, 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 the accountants amongst us, no offense, Gary. You know, we sit here and we do the numbers. We do the numbers. Wait a second. Double in the sixth year and I can plant the seventh? Wow, that's a bonus. That's like, what, a 14, 15% increase. And for the last 400 and something years, they had not let the land lie follow. They had not let it go and rest. You know what? God took notice. Does God care about the land? Obviously, he does. Whose land is it? It's his land. He cared about the land. He cared about what they were doing. And in every way possible, they had abused the things of the Lord. They had taken him for granted. God required this for over 400 years, probably since before there were kings. They had not let the land rest. Let's look at that prophecy to Jeremiah. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And he wrote the book of Lamentations appropriately as well. Jeremiah chapter 25, we'll begin at verse 8. We're going to look up about what the Lord says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah started with the time of Josiah and great revival. And then he just watched the whole nation of Judah go downhill. Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Verse 11, the whole land shall be, shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. It's amazing what the Lord can do. 
He says Nebuchadnezzar. You go to a history book and read about Nebuchadnezzar. One of the, one of the most well-known kings, even today, thousands of years later, if you say the name Nebuchadnezzar, people generally know that. Wasn't he some famous king way back when? Thousands of years later. How does God address Nebuchadnezzar before he even shows up? He's my servant. I say to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, go over here and do this. Okay? And Nebuchadnezzar does it. Now, Eric spoke on the last couple of weeks of how the Lord had to speak to Nebuchadnezzar and how he didn't respond, though he's given much light. There were other kings after him that took over for him that didn't respond to him as well. Didn't respond to the Lord. So the Lord's going to bring judgment on Babylon as well. But he will bring the captivity back. It says, after 70 years are completed, I will bring them back. Let's turn over a couple pages to Jeremiah 29 as well. Some of our most famous verses we get out of the Bible, sometimes we don't know the context of where they're at. You know, And I can show you the context of some of these verses. The context here is God's promise to bring them back from Babylon. Okay, after 70 years. I'm sorry, that's beginning at verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. See that? That's the context of those verses. Very memorable verses. Great promises. Promises are still true today. If there's anyone here this morning, the Lord has a promise for you here as well, if you don't know the Lord. You see what he's saying here? He, he has a better future for you. If you don't come to him, the future is not good. He's not going to drag anybody to heaven. He will not make anyone become born again. But if you come to him, if you search for him with all your heart, not as a hobby, not as a side activity, but you really search for the Lord like he's valuable. We're going to see that today in this, this passage. The Lord wants to be treated as valuable. And for those of us who know him, let me ask you, is the Lord valuable? Is he worth searching with all your heart? He really is. And there's a promise there. If you search for him with all your heart, you'll, you will find him. And he has a future for you of hope, a good future of peace and not evil. And that was his promise to Judah, to Israel, to bring him back from the captivity. So what does the Lord do? He says there in second, back to Second Chronicles 36. I'll just read it, just a couple of verses. It says in Second Chronicles 36, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, remember from our timeline that he's the one who took over, who, who took Babylon, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So they made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, 
all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord God be with him and let him go up. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying there? This is a pagan king who just took over for Babylon. He's victorious. Okay? He's set a ruler there named Darius the Mede, ruling there in Babylon. He rules from, from Persia. So we had the map back up. Babylon, it would be present-day Iraq. Okay? And Persia would be, would be present-day Iran. Okay? So he's ruling from, as it were, Iran, from, from Persia. And here he is talking about sending the Jews back to Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? Later on, the kings are even challenged. Wait a second, don't you know Jerusalem was a rebellious city? And generally speaking, it was. Why would he do that? Because God stirred up his heart. God moved this great king, King Cyrus of Persia, the one who overthrew the Babylonians, and said, all right, we're going to send some people back. Now, all you people of his who know the Lord, get up and go. I'll go build his temple. All right, well, that's where we come to Zerubbabel. Okay? Zerubbabel was a grandson of a king named Jeconiah. If you know anything about Jeconiah, he was not one of the very, one of the very good kings. He was at the end of the time there in Jerusalem, and he was actually cursed. There's a curse against Jeconiah. I won't read it. It's in Jeremiah 22. But basically what the Lord says is none of his descendants will ever rule in Jerusalem. None of his descendants will ever be king. And that was happened to, that was a curse that God pronounced on Jeconiah through Jeremiah. And here was Zerubbabel. You got a cursed grandfather. You've been deported, excuse me, taken captive all the way to Babylon. You getting you get different people ruling over Babylon. First is the Babylonians, now it's the Medes and the Persians. And now you have this proclamation. If you were Zerubbabel, would you be really excited about going and building the house of the Lord miles and miles away, a four months travel? As a grandson of a cursed king, would you even have a right to? Zerubbabel had been recognized. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, the book of Ezra. Just the right term from Second Chronicles. Zerubbabel had been recognized as being a ruler in Judah. Even while he was in Babylon, they could tell he was a leader amongst the Jews. Probably because of his lineage and how he was a grandson of a king. And God wanted to use Zerubbabel. Even though Zerubbabel would never be king, God wanted to use him anyway. Let's read Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, again, this looks very familiar. There's going to be more. Thus says the king of Persia, all the kings of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, all his people? May his God be with them and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. See what Cyrus is saying there? He said, God has given me everything, and he's told me he wants that house rebuilt. Now you guys go. And we're going to see, not only does Cyrus issue the, how do we say, issue the permits? He's not only issuing the permits for this building project, he's going to finance it. Okay? And we're going to see how the Lord provides throughout this building project. It's really wonderful. And we see the spirits of those the Lord is leading to go and do it. Verse 6, On all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. I believe Sheshbazzar is just another name for Zerubbabel. Um, I can get into that later, but that, you have to take my word for it for now. That's, a, that's the, probably the um, Persian name for for Zerubbabel. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these, Sheshbazar, took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. 5,400 pieces of gold and silver articles. But here's the Lord. You got to think, picture if you're a Jew, you're in Babylon, you're seeing the kingdom go back and forth, you're trying to keep your head down and not get killed between the Babylonians and the Persians. Persians come in and thinking, oh no, what's going to happen to me? King Cyrus comes in and says, okay, you guys go build Jerusalem, go build the temple again. Oh, and by the way, here, take a bunch of stuff with you. Here's a bunch of gold and here's a bunch of silver. You see? That's the Lord. That's the Lord. That's how he does things. One of the greatest rulers of that time, Cyrus, defeats Babylon, and then God does this through him. He's funding it. He's backing it. The only thing Cyrus is not doing is what? He's not doing it himself. He, that's right. He's not doing it himself. Why? Why isn't Cyrus going and building it himself? He even says, God told me to build it. Why isn't he building it himself? It says there in verse 3, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He's a pagan king. He's not, he knows he shouldn't. But he knows who should. Who should build the house of God? 
God's people, right? That's who should build the house of God. Which ones? Which of God's people? All of them? There's no limitations here, right? Do we have a building project today? Do we have a building project today? At Calvary Bible Chapel? Oh, I'm not talking about the plot of dirt outside the door there. Oh, is that what you guys outside? I wasn't talking about that. No, we have a different building project, a more important one. Sure, we have that one. The more important building project today is what? It's seeing the souls of men and women saved, born again, and added to the family of God. To become part of the people of God. Now, why doesn't God give that job, that very important job, why doesn't He give it to angels? Faithful, powerful angels? Wouldn't they do a much better job? Don't you think sometimes? No, God wants us, His people, to do that job. We are His people, the ones He has saved. We are the ones who know what it means to be in darkness and be changed from darkness into His marvelous light. Do you remember what that's like? Just like the Lord called Zerubbabel and the children of Israel out of Babylon to rebuild the temple, so the Lord is calling us to build His living building. The living temple, as it were, with Him. We're not doing it ourselves. What did Jesus say? I, Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. <laughs> you Forget it. You want to talk about authority. Cyrus had borrowed authority from Jesus. Jesus came and he says, I will build. That's authority. That's permits, as it were. Has he equipped us as he did Zerubbabel? Ephesians 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything you could possibly need to do what God wants, He's given. Nothing's been left. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If the Father gave His Son, is that what Romans 8 says? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? Everything that we need, He's already given to us. Spiritual blessings, spiritual gifts, everything we need to live a right and godly life and to build this living temple. Let's stop and think about this. How many people went back with Zerubbabel? Let's go to Ezra chapter 2. It says, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, and I'm not going to read that big old long list of names. It's a lot of people. The Lord knows and the Lord cares about them. And it says at the end of the chapter, in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360. 
besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. So what's that about? Doing some quick math. It's about 50,000, right? Okay? About 50,000 people came back. Usually when they did a census like this, they only counted men. So approximately, we're probably talking about between 120 to 150,000, maybe even more, came back. How many do you think were taken to Babylon? Hard to tell. But when it's described about the ones who came back, they're always described as being a remnant. The remnant that came back. Let me ask you a question. Why didn't they all come back? Why didn't they all come back? It says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits God had moved. Here you are. You're, you're a captive. You're taking men from... Imagine, we're so proud in this country and, and, and probably you know, justifiably so. I don't know if it's a, I say it's a right thing, but there's good reason why we're proud. But we can't imagine ourselves being taken captive to some other country. It's really hard. But imagine if we were taken captive to some other country and time passed and then one of the kings says, okay, now go back and rebuild. And here, I'll give you the finances you need to rebuild. Wouldn't you go? Don't you think you'd go? You'd come back? Here you had Jews being sent back to Jerusalem, permitted, financed, backed. Who went back? It's 150,000. They're described as a remnant. It says, again, in verse 5, all whose spirits God had moved. How many spirits do you think God was working in? Of all the Jews in Babylon who heard this decree, how many spirits was God working in? I think he was working in all of them. Let me ask you, did all of them get moved? That's an amazing thing to me. God who created everything. He he throws out galaxies like nothing. He says, hey, would you like to go back? And he waits for your spirit to get moved. He waits for my spirit to hear his voice and respond to it. He doesn't put you in a headlock and say, come on, dummy, can't you get it? Wake up. He, he made Nebuchadnezzar like a wild animal. Was it seven years? Just so Nebuchadnezzar could look up. But you know what? God doesn't do that. God wants God's people to do things for the right reason. And what's that right reason? Just love for him. He was working in each one of their lives, but only some of them were moved. Only some of them were moved. Why did the rest not go? It makes me think of what Jesus says in Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Lord, with the Lord, it's a big F. I've seen people who are hard-nosed against the Lord all the way to the grave. If there's anything that's absolutely incredible to me in my whole life, that's it. To go all the way to the point of your deathbed, 
hard-nosed against God. It's amazing. But he says if. He says, if you will seek me, if you will come, if anyone. But he doesn't make you. Not to come to know him or for the Christian to serve him. Ten times in the Gospel of John, he says, if anyone. He does, Jesus doesn't make us do anything. He wants us to love him out of our own free wills. <laughs> We're just studying that, weren't we, Andy? We're just studying that at the stranger class on Tuesday nights. It's the way God set it up in the beginning. He gives Adam and Eve a whole universe and world. I mean, I think the best thing I ever got was a car. And it was used. You know? He gives them a whole world and says, here, and tell you what, I'll give you a chance to show your love for me. I'll put one tree in there. Just don't touch it. And he gives them a whole world that's beautiful. And then he puts a garden. How do you have a beautiful world already and then put a garden inside a beautiful world? I don't know, but God does. And he puts a garden there and says, I'll give you one thing just to show your love for me. You can exercise your will to love me. Just don't eat that one tree. Just because I told you. Just because I say so. That's all God ever wanted. It's even true in the law. Remember when Moses came down, he slammed the stones down when Israel was doing just awful things. And he says, you've broken the law, and he threw that down. God gave him another chance to pick up the law. And right when he was picking up the law the second time, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, this is what God wanted. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. To keep his, the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Then it was part of the law. Today we're in the church, and we have no organized religious country like Israel was. Everything is, is volunteer. We do things out of love for the Lord. Is love the motivating factor for why you serve the Lord? Sure, the Lord deserves to be, to be served. Sure, it is wrong to be one of his people and not serve him. But the Lord wants his people to serve him out of love. The verse is out of 1 John chapter 4. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. This is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I like this last one out of chapter 5, verse 3. This is love for God. To obey His commands. And His commands aren't burdensome. You know, that's how you can tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever just goes, oh, man, i got to go to this, and i got to do that, and i got to read my Bible, you know. 
when I, when I got married, I didn't say things like, oh, I gotta take my wife out to the movies, or I gotta go home on dinner on time, you know? Man, especially when I was first saved, I was running home. Right? She's making dinner. That's my wife. Why? Because I love her. What does the Lord want? Love. Love. Knowing and following the Lord is, a vol- is on a, is on a vol- volunteer basis. It's on a volunteer basis. But I'll tell you, you can't find a better thing to do with your life. So the people are back in Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. When is the temple of the Lord, temple for the Lord going to be built? They're back to Jerusalem. They're back. They're settling in. When are we going to start building? Ezra chapter 3. And when the seventh month had come, this is the seventh month they had been there, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. Verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, or according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. It's interesting. It says the seventh month. Took them how long to, to, to get around to at least off, offering the offerings? Giving the offerings. It took six months. What were they doing? Probably establishing their, their houses. They had shown up. Remember, we're talking about 150,000 people showing up, beginning to live. Okay? So, <clears throat> no, there's no... Uh, commentary on this being a bad thing, that it took them six months to establish this. <clears throat> when they did meet, they were ready to sacrifice to God. And though the foreigners that had settled into the land, because now they were coming back, people were there. It wasn't like it was completely vacant. The kings of Assyria and Babylon had thrown people into the area who kind of mixed things up. Foreigners, not Israelites. Though they were fearful of them, they started offering sacrifices to the Lord anyway. Verse 8. Now in the second month of the second year of, the, of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Let's think about this. Now it's taken seven more months to get the work started. The first six months, all they did, what they got done is they got an altar going and offered sacrifices on it. Now it's an additional approximate seven months, 13 to 14 months after they have arrived and they've started the work. Now it could have been they're waiting on building supplies. Maybe, maybe the Dale hardware of uh, Tyre and, and Sidon was slow in filling orders. Maybe the backlog of lumber in Lebanon was 12 to 14 weeks. 
Maybe there was a worker strike at the port of Joppa. Things like that happen in construction projects, don't they? It's natural. You can understand that. It can all be valid reasons why the work was slow in getting done. But we're going to see later that there might have been other reasons as well. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, so we got the altar built. We have the foundation being laid. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and head, heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. And when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. What's happening here? They're laying the foundation of the temple. They're relaying it. Is this a joyous time or a sad time? Should have been joyous, huh? They're laying the foundation. All the, all the ones who grew up in Babylon are now back in this country they've heard about, and now, now they're here, and they're excited. They're relaying the temple foundation. How exciting. They're seeing God's work done and the Lord's provided. Wow, how exciting is this? Some of them are sad. Why are they sad? You got the older ones. And as they look at that foundation and as they see that altar, what are they doing? Like many of us older people do. They reminisce. They reflect. They think, yeah, but you should have seen the other one. You see? What is that? It's regret, isn't it? They're thinking about what happened and how it was destroyed. And how this new one is not like the old one. Has this ever happened to you? It's natural to compare the old with the new, isn't it? I've had it happen to me. People have compared different things and, and they say, Oh yeah, but back then we used to do it this way. You know, up to this point I've been a, a, pretty much a fairly young guy. And so I always think in my head, yeah, that was then. This is now. And I don't want to not learn from the experience of others, but I don't want to limit God who's working when? In the now. God's working right here and right now. We can't pattern our lives of what God did in the past. You know, learn from it and get experience. Don't deny it or excuse it or forget about it. Learn from it. But we need to follow the Lord where he is now. So far we've had fears of neighbors, construction delays, mixed reactions from the people. What lay in store next for our poor Zerubbabel getting this building project done? I hope Don's listening to this somewhere. Maybe he's back in the other room. There's Don, our Zerubbabel, our current Zerubbabel, our current building project. He'll probably be living in this book for the next couple of six months. <clears throat> Could turn to Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses 
and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build the, the Lord God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in, in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Building delays can be understood. Building delays can be understood. They happen all the time. Mixed reactions from workers is natural, especially given the different ages and experiences. But what we have here is the real killer. What is it? It's discouragement. Discouragement. Here we have foreigners who have settled into the land. At best, they have mixed up the true religion of the Jews with the paganism they, that they brought with them. And they want to help with the building of the Lord. Why do you think they want to help? They want to help so that they can have a say in what goes on there. And not only in the temple, but in Jerusalem. And they want to pollute the truth with their lies. What's the right, what, what is the right response? Someone wants to come in and pollute the truth with lies. What's the right response? Don't do it. Don't do it. There was once a man who tried to come to, into an assembly, into our assembly as a matter of fact, and after the brothers got to know him, they found out he didn't believe in the deity of Christ. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising, isn't it, Steffi? It is surprising. He sat there like anybody else, and in his heart, he believed Jesus wasn't God. You see? People are like that. And what they want us to, they, they can, just like those guys who mix up the religion, these guys believe a lot of what you and I believe. And just like any good meal, so we, we've been studying at Stranger, you get 99% good meal, 1% cyanide. You want that for a meal? No, that's what, that's what the, the lie does. Poisons everything. What's the best response? That's what he says here. You will have no part of it. No part of it. This doesn't mean you can't help people personally, but those of false religions who teach a lie, you don't want to validate anything that they're teaching. It says even the New Testament, don't, don't even bid them God's speed. Don't say God bless you. I remember one of them tried to, she was involved in culture, tried to shake my hand. I, said, I can't shake that hand. If shaking that hand means I validate what you're saying. I can't shake it. She was offended. Nice young gal. Offended. Hopefully that spoke to her though. Because she wasn't teaching the truth. Okay, that was verse 4, chapter 4. Did it work? Were they discouraged? Look at verse 24. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Yep, it worked. The work stopped. The God-permitted, God-funded, God-backed work stopped. The enemy had finally gotten through. Why? Because of discouragement. Many of God's people have become discouraged. They run into so much opposition, they just give up. 
What's the use? No matter what I do, something's always coming up. Every time I try to go forward, these neighbors of mine drag me to a halt. Forget it. It isn't worth it. I give up. Ever felt like that before? Ever felt that discouraged? What's the cure for discouragement? I think to know that, you need to know what the root cause, the root, the cause, the root cause of discouragement is. We get discouraged when we make heart-based decisions on what we see right here and right now, don't we? Circumstances pile up against us. It all brings us down. We say, forget it. And we get discouraged. It's all because of what we see. Oftentimes, it's because we see those we used to depend on. Those things that used to be taken for granted to us. And we get discouraged. Because they're not there. The root cause for discouragement is this focus on ourselves and what we can see. What's the cure for discouragement? Well, those things aren't going to go away. I have a good friend of mine. He tells me, I said, how are you doing? He says, well, nothing's changed. (laughs) But he's not discouraged. He's not discouraged. I think it's because of his focus. All these things can be true but we're losing sight of what Jesus promised us. He says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, again, speaking about the building project, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And here's the most important part, I think, of this section, what Jesus says next. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just that promise right there by itself. Do we really have a right to be discouraged? I am with you always. If you've got Jesus, is that enough? It, it ought to be, shouldn't it? Now, I'm, I'm flesh and bones like anybody else. I'm not sitting here saying I don't get discouraged. I get discouraged. But you know what? I need to have my nose back in this book. I need to read and be reminded that Jesus is with me no matter what. We always have Jesus. No matter what happens, we cannot be separated from him and his love. What does his love do? All things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. While he is with us in his presence, he is also with us in purpose, working all these things, even the discouraging things that drag you down. He's using that for your good. What do we need to do? I think we need to take God at his word. I think we need to take the discouraging things, the things themselves, and say, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me so much as to be with me my whole life through and bring me through all these situations that would normally be discouraging, crushing Lord, they don't feel good. But by faith, I take them as coming from your hand. And I take them gladly. Knowing that you're using them for my good. Lord, help me to be sweet about them. About what you're doing in my life today. 
this is this what Zerubbabel and his friends did? Well, unfortunately, not for not for fifteen more years. Ezra chapter five, verse one. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. They needed a little help. You know what? Sometimes we need help. I appreciate what Eric has talked about, and I, I've, I've been the same way. I, I get stuck in a funk. Call it discouragement. Call it a funk. I don't care what you call it. You get stuck. And you know what? We're not made to live this life by ourselves. Not made to be Lone Ranger Christians. God gave different gifts in the church to become different parts of the body for the working, the edifying, the building up of the whole body. Similar to what you see here, Zerubbabel and Joshua were stuck. The Lord sends Haggai and Zechariah. We're going to see that the first thing, and sometimes this is what we need when we're discouraged, is they need a kick in the pants. In Haggai chapter 1, it says this. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. See what the Lord is saying there? They came, and they were distracted, and they were distracted, and finally they just stopped building. But what did they focus on? (laughs) It sounded like they had some pretty nice houses. Paneled homes, whatever that means. Nice houses. It wasn't that God didn't want them a place to stay. You can see where their focus was at. Where was their focus? Right here. Me, myself, and mine, all three of us, we're going to take care of us first. Me first. Deadly. Picking up there, verse 8. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. He says, I don't need it from Lebanon. I'll go to the mountains. That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. What? By being put first and not last. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withhold its fruit. For I call it a drought. You can see their reasonings. There's delays. These people aren't letting us. They're sending counselors against us. Forget it. I give up. And they go work on their own homes for 15 years. He 
He says, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Is it right? You see, God has a strange notion that he should be first. Isn't that, isn't that a strange notion? He gave us everything. He gives us life. He gives us salvation. And he says, put me first. And you know what? In the physical world, people would say you're crazy. You put God first, you're never going to take care of yourself. You'll be giving your money away to a, to a church somewhere and you'll be a fool. You know what God says? Put me first. You put me first and I'll take care of you. What does Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? Everything. Everything. It's not right to put them last. We have last place in our home. It used to be Anna. Then we got a dog. And then we got some fish. The fish are last. Ask the kids, who's last in the home? It's the fish. Then it's the dog. The Lord should not be last. The Lord should be first. Who do you put first? You put your loved ones. Again, why? Who's your loved one? That's what the Lord wants. He wants that first place in your heart. He says, he who does not hate father or mother, brother, sister, more than me, not worthy of me. He wants that all. He wants that first place. What will happen if we do that? Hey, yeah, chapter 2. I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of there real quick. Again, this is the prophet preaching. The prophet preaching to the people in that time. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Hey, yeah, the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. It's a spiritual principle, brothers and sisters. You put the Lord first, consume yourself in the things of the Lord, work, don't be afraid. Don't focus on yourself and your own. Focus on Him and His. And what? He says, I'll, I will be with you. Be strong. Do not be afraid. Later on, some people ask some questions about whether they should be, be building and the permits are checked. Another king, King Darius. <laughs> These are huge kings in history. King Darius says, Oh, yeah, those permits are good. And by the way, all of you in that area that you were questioning whether those are good permits, why don't you help pay for that temple being built? Okay, again, who is that? That's the Lord. These permits had expired out here outside this building. The Lord brought them back. The city calls us and asks us if we want an extension. That's the Lord. So after 15 years, under the encouragement 
of Haggai and Zechariah, they finished the temple. Chapter 6, verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, and they built and finished it. According to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was the sixth year of the reign of king of Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. After a 15-year break, they finished the job in four years. The Lord blessed them for their obedience. Now he could rain down the blessings on them that he so wanted to give them because now they were putting him first. I believe Jesus says something similar in John 8. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, why? For my sake. Whoever will live his life for me, for my sake, and the Gospels, for the Lord Jesus, and walking with him, and for the gospel, spreading the good news of salvation. We'll save it. And then he just asked real common sense questions. We need to ask ourselves this morning. For what will it profit a man? Every person in here, think of this question. As you spend your time, as you spend your money, your hours, each day, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then a solemn warning at the end. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father, the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, I do want to thank you for Zerubbabel. I thank you for telling uh, his story just as it is with his ups and downs, with the, with the delays and the, the needed exhortation. And Lord, I pray for myself and for any others here who might be like Zerubbabel, who have been discouraged, who have wanted to give up. Because everything seems to be coming against them. Lord, help us to focus again on you, to know that you are with us and not against us. And that since you are for us, nothing can stand against us. That even your presence is with us until we see you face to face. And Lord, help us to take this exhortation. Lord, that we can't focus on ourselves, our own homes, our own whatever it might be. But Lord, help us to realize we need to focus on you, on your work, spending the, the time, the money, the effort towards building that which is going to last. Lord, we know that the building project here is, is all going to burn up one day and it means nothing. Lord, help us to be committed to that building project of seeing saints grow and seeing unsaved people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this example and help us to be changed by it. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.